Unstoppable force has been our teaching series. Jesus said in 1618, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's us he's building. And as we work our way through 1 Timothy, we're learning how to be all that Christ has died to make us. And it gives us really what a healthy church looks like. And this morning we're gonna talk about healthy believers. Grab your sermon notes out. Turn to your Bibles in 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. I did a wedding several years ago, and Nancy and I ran into some old friends we hadn't seen in quite a few years. And, and they said, as we were talking to them, they, they looked at Nancy and they said, Wow, Nancy, you haven't changed a bit. And they continued to talk to her for a little while. And then they looked over at me and said, oh, hi, Ray. We didn't even recognize you. That hurt. And needless to say, need I say, those people are no longer my friends. I'm sure they're still Nancy's friends. But, but to have someone say, you haven't changed a bit physically over time. It can be a good thing. It can be a good thing. But to have someone say you haven't changed a bit spiritually over time can be a very bad thing. A very bad thing. Take a look at your sermon notes here. There is a major problem when people talk about meeting God or, how, or, or knowing God and yet remaining unchanged over time by God. There's a major problem with that. If the God who is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited in power, comes to dwell within you, believe me, believe me, it will transform your life. You cannot live in vital union and communion with the creator of the universe and remain the same. Now, where have we been as we walk through 1 Timothy? Well, we're looking at the church, what a healthy church looks like, the church and its message. We spent two weeks on that. Chapter one, the church and its message, doctrine matters, glorious gospel. And then the third week, we began the church and its members. We talked about how we need to be praying people, first part of chapter two. Second part of chapter two was pretty difficult because we talked about man and womanhood. We talked about the roles of men and women in the church. And then last weekend, we talked about dedicated leaders, chapter three. We began working through chapter three, characteristics of spiritual maturity. Those weren't just characteristics of, of elders and deacons, but that's characteristics for all of us because we, we were dealing with really character qualities of spiritual maturity. And now we come to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, healthy believers. And the, and the question we're looking at, the idea here is how to grow in these character qualities. I believe he gives us the answer here in these verses. How does life change happen? How, do we, how are we transformed by the gospel? What does that look like as, as the gospel transforms our life? So here's my thesis statement here this morning. Healthy Christians live godly lives. You can see this on your notes. Healthy Christians live godly lives that consist of confession, conviction, and commitment. You can see that on your notes. So healthy Christians live godly lives. We'll define godly. You might, might have an idea of what godly, a godly life is. Healthy Christians live godly lives that consist of confession, conviction, commitment. So this is how it works. So confession, truth entering the head. There's truths about who Christ is and what he's done for us. Enters the head. Conviction would be it ignites the heart. And then commitment, it outworks through our hands. Head, heart, hands, confession, conviction, commitment. Uh, by the way, uh, that's what saving faith looks like. And anybody know where the faith chapter is in the Bible? Hebrews chapter 11. 
In fact, you're going to see all three of those components there in that chapter. You're going to also see all those three components in the definition found in the very first verse of that chapter in Hebrews 11. And so that's where we're headed with our study this morning. Healthy Christians live godly lives that consist of confession, conviction, commitment. That's where we're going. Let's first pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask for God's help just before we read this text and unpack these notes. Let's pray once again. God, we are delighted to be here today. There is nothing that satisfies our soul, liberates our lives, fortifies our faith like spending time with you and worshiping you corporately in song and now in the study of your word. Open our eyes to wonderful things from your word. Teach us how our lives can continue to be transformed by the gospel. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look, grab your Bibles, and uh, we'll look at this, these verses. Uh, just three verses compared to the 13 verses we covered last week as we work our way through First Timothy. Let me read through this text. I hope to come to you soon. So he's just finished off talking about, as I stated, qualifications for uh, elders and then deacons. And now he says, I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, anytime you study the Bible, there's three kind of steps that you typically take in the study of of God's word. And you first of all do an observation. What is it saying? And then interpretation, what does it mean? And then you go to application, which how do you work this out into your life? How do you apply this to your life? Let's just go back to the text. Keep your Bibles open. We'll do a quick observation here. I'll point some things out to you. And then our outline will give us the interpretation and application of this text. So look at this text once again. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to be behave. Stop there just for a minute as as we work through that. These are the two key verses of this whole uh, letter written by the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy. And he's telling us what this book is all about, what this letter is all about, so that you'll know how to behave. So what does a healthy uh, church look like? And notice he gives three descriptions of the church. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Those are three really powerful descriptions of us, the church. And then what follows is a song about this truth, and he gives us a summary of the gospel. And this was possibly a song that they sang or a creed that they quoted to one another so that they could remember what the gospel is, so that the gospel would would go deep down into their hearts. And, and it's actually th- uh, three, three couplets in the, in, in the song of praise here. So great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. So what does he mean? What is he saying here? He's saying, well, here's the key to life change, godliness, God-centeredness, a God-glorifying kind of life. The mystery, how life change happens right here. And then he, and he tells us what that looks like. How that happens, he says, he was manifested in the flesh. By the way, there's probably about eight or quite a number of truths we could draw from this. I'm only going to draw three from this song. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. He's talking about the incarnation, vindicated by the spirit. Now he's talking about the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 talks about how Jesus validated who he was through the resurrection from the dead through the spirit. Notice it says, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, ascension. So incarnation, resurrection, ascension. So healthy Christians live godly lives that consist of 
Now, before we look at the confession, conviction, and commitment, so verse 16, great indeed we confess the mystery of godliness. Mystery is something that has been hidden for a time but is now revealed. And the word godliness is one of Paul's favorite words in the letter. It is used nine different times. It's a pretty important word. So godliness is to have a God consciousness or a God centeredness that permeates everything you do. So it'd be really a God glorifying life, a life that's being transformed. So we could say those who are saved by the gospel, we see the gospel here in this song, those who are saved by the gospel will live godly lives. So great indeed, oh my goodness, it's just, it's just overflowing as he's reflecting on who we are in Christ. Great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. This is how our lives are transformed. So those who are saved by the gospel will live godly lives. Okay, let's take a look at this. So three things. So first of all, confession, head, that truth entering the head. So let's look at this summary of the gospel as I already stated. So first of all, incarnation. And I gave you a, a, an alliteration here. So we got incarnation, resurrection, ascension. Now, I, I've said this many times before, but if you ask most Americans what is the gospel, they couldn't tell you what the gospel is. And I even mean American Christians. A lot of American Christians don't know what the gospel is. I, I, and so we, you hear the gospel week in and week out here at Desert Breeze. And so I, I alliterated this to make it easy. Incarnation, resurrection, ascension. Here's the alliteration. Crib, cross, crown. What is the gospel? Crib, cross, crown. Incarnation. Here's a, a phrase that goes along with that. He knows. He knows. As we think about the gospel, so incarnation, crib, he knows. Verse 16, he was manifested in the flesh. Suffering can make you feel all alone until you meet someone who has gone through what you are going through. And then you trust them and pour your heart out to them because you know they understand. The incarnation of Jesus Christ tells us that, that he was a human being who was born in a manger, who knew poverty and betrayal and denial by those closest to him, and he knew extreme suffering and death. What does that mean to us? Well, here's what it means. Whatever you are going through, God has gone through it and understands and can help you. That's what that means. It's amazing. This doctrine of the incarnation, it means many things, but that's one of the big things that it means. Whatever you're going through, God has gone through it and understands and can help you. Let me give you a cross-reference. It's there on your notes. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us boldly come before the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh my goodness, he understands. He knows what you're going through. You're not all alone. Incarnation, crib, he knows. Resurrection, cross, he cares. That's the next fill in the blank. Verse 16, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Romans 8, 31 and 32, you guys probably know at least the front end of, of that verse, that first part of that verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that, that alone is enough. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? That's our, that's, those are great verses, those two verses there. What that is is gospel logic. Here's gospel logic and what those verses are saying. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. And what he's saying is that, that if God has dealt with your worst problem, you guys know what your worst problem was? 
and it may be for some of you is, still is, that you're separated from God. Your sin separates you from God. And there isn't anything you can do to bridge the gap that separates you from God. And he has already done it for you. And if he didn't spare his own son to take care of you, to draw you to himself, he's not going to spare anything else to take care of you from this point on until he gets you to heaven. That's the point of those verses. Nothing we can ever receive can possibly compare with God's gift of the sacrifice of his son in our place for our sins. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to think that he would fail to provide you with everything you need between your conversion and your final resurrection with him. Listen, if he didn't spare his own son, oftentimes when I'm hanging out with people and someone's struggling with something, I'll, I'll kind of say to them, hey, Romans 8, 31 and 32, if he didn't spare his son, he's got this covered too. This is much less of a problem than that problem. If he took care of your worst problem, he's got all of your lesser problems taken care of. That's gospel logic. That's what he's saying here in Romans 8, 31 and 32. When you give way to excessive anxiety, anger, and depression, you are committing an act of gospel irrationality. So incarnation, crib, he knows. Resurrection, cross, he cares. Ascension, crown, he rules. Verse 16, taken up in glory. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Speaking of Jesus here, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why it tells us in Hebrews 12.2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know what it, mean, what it means? When he says scorning its shame, scorning the shame of the cross, he's saying no big deal. Yeah, it's very shameful. No big deal for what I've achieved for you. And it brought joy to him to bridge the gap between you and the Father. And notice what it says as it goes on, scorning its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what does that mean that he rules? This is what it means. It means that there is not one maverick molecule on this planet. He rules. Because God is sovereign, and if you think out the implications of that, there's a lot. Let me just give you a few here just to think about. If God is sovereign, my problems have a purpose. My problems have a purpose. It's not random. It's not out of control. Romans 8.28, you've memorized that before. Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's working all things for your good and ultimately his glory. So if God is sovereign, my problems have a purpose, my prayers have an impact, James 5, 16. His power in me will be greater than anything I will ever face, 1 John 4, 4. If God is sovereign, his purposes, his plans cannot be thwarted, Job 42, 2. Let me just take that last one. That one I just said, his purposes, his plans cannot be thwarted. If God is sovereign, his purposes and plans cannot be thwarted. Let's make it really uh, applicational to our own lives. We should care about politics and the economy and the downward slide of morals in our country, but we shouldn't be stressed out over them if we believe God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted. Why are we so stressed out? Because we... We're wondering, what's going on? What's going on with politics? What's going on with the downward slide of the morals in our culture today? Oh, no. Wait a minute. Time out. He's working his plan no matter what's going on. He's still in control. Yeah, you pray about those things, but you know that he has a plan that goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Your rest is not found in trying to figure it all out, but in trusting the one who has it all figured out for your good and his glory. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, as high as the heavens 
are above the earth, are his thoughts above your thoughts and his ways above your ways. How high is that? Incalculable. He's in control. He's got a plan. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Quit freaking out, okay? You don't need to freak out. You can rest in him. People are going to question the God that you believe in when you're freaking out about all of these things. Yeah, you need to be concerned. Yeah, you need to pray, but you can rest. You can rest in him. Now, real quick, turn to the person or the people around you and say, no need to stress out. He knows, he cares, he rules. Turn, turn and do that real quick. No need to stress out. He knows, he cares, he rules. No need to stress out. He knows, he cares, he rules. So here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. The gospel is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. The gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history that changes your status forever. And that's where we move to the next point. So it goes from confession to conviction. And here's where we talk about that new status that we have in those three descriptions. But before we do that, let me, let me just say this so that you can understand a little bit how, how it needs to move from confession to conviction. So truth entering the head and then igniting the heart it's one thing to, to know in your head that my wife's famous sweet rolls lavished with icing are sweet, okay? It's one thing to know that in, in your head. By the way, just between us, don't tell her this, but I found some uh, that she had saved from the holidays hiding in the freezer, okay? <laughs> this last week. Ooh, baby. 25 seconds in the microwave. Bam! Those are delicious, and I got to eat them up before freezer burn takes over, okay? Before they get freezer burned. So um, I would share them with you, but you probably wouldn't like them as much as I do. But, uh, but, but it's one thing to know, if you were to look at those sweet rolls, oh my goodness, they're delicious looking. And you'd say, yep, those look pretty sweet there. It's one thing to know in your head that my wife's sweet rolls lavished with icing are sweet. But it's altogether another thing to have that sweetness on the palate of your tongue, savoring it and chasing it with a hot Americano coffee. Yeah. I had one of those this morning, by the way, before I came in. Oh, and had one yesterday, too. I plan on having one tomorrow until they're, they're done. But it's one thing to know in your head. Think about this. It's one thing to know in your head, truth entering the head, that God knows, cares, and rules. But it's altogether another thing to have an experience of it on your heart. See, confession, just agreement with these truths in your head without it igniting your heart, confession minus conviction is dead orthodoxy. It's religion. You're just going through the motions. And so seeing God rightly should stir the affections of our heart. As we see him, as the Bible describes who God is, it should stir the affections of our heart. It is a heart experience based on objective truth is what we're talking about here. So it's going from your head to your heart. And, and by the way, this is how you begin to narrow the gap. We call it the gospel gap around here at Desert Breeze. There's a gap between my confession. I believe that God is for me and not against me. We all would say, yeah, that's true. But then there's oftentimes a gap between my confession and my conduct, how I live that out, and how I respond to the people, things, and circumstances of my life. Because often that betrays my confession. I may say God is for me and not against me, but does that, how does that look in my life as I respond to, to the people, things, and circumstances of my life? Oftentimes I'm freaking out. I'm stressed out. I'm angry. I'm upset. And it would tell, it would tell a different story. So how do you narrow that gap? Right here, conviction. The truth about who Christ is and what he's done has to be lit on fire in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And as we, we hang on to those truths and we pray, and there are many times, that that's one of the reasons why I meditate on, on Scripture. I meditate on it until the Holy Spirit just makes it hot. It's on fire within my life. I believe that's a lot of what the, the Spirit-filled life is about. And so that's how you narrow the gap. So let's talk about this conviction, heart. So confession, truth entering the head, conviction, igniting the heart, Verse 15, we have three descriptions of the church. So this is the result of the gospel. This is who we are as a result of the gospel. This is what the gospel produces. We are members of God's family. That's your next fill in the blank. We are members of God's family. Look at verse 15, the household of God. He, he calls us, we are the household of God. Now there is no greater honor on earth than to be a member of God's family. I know some of you just went right by, just like, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, that's cool, oh, yeah. No, 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 let me say it again. There's no greater honor on earth than to be a member of God's family. This is infinitely better than Tom Brady's six Super Bowl rings, okay? I just wanna, just wanna tell you that, okay? Okay, by the way, I only have one thing to say about that Super Bowl, old guys rule, okay? <laughs> old guys rule. You guys agree with that? Any old guys here? Yeah, yeah, baby. Just look at the age difference between the, the coaches and the quarterbacks between the two teams. Okay, enough said there. Okay. So here's the deal. There is no greater honor on earth than to be a member of God's family. When was the last time, when was the last time you were awestruck by the fact that you are part of God's family? This is what he says, the household of God. See, we're too quick. We just kind of race through our Bible studies. We don't take out enough time to really think deeply about these truths. 1 John 3, 1, the writer here says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, if you understand uh, how that verse is written, and in the Koine Greek, uh, he's actually using there with that how great, that word is an idiomatic phrase. And the translators out of the Koine Greek didn't know how to translate that into the English, and so they just put great there. But you need to know what's behind that word great. Idiomatic phrase is a phrase like it's raining like cats and dogs outside. It would be something that we would use to kind of explain uh, things in our life. And so if you tried to translate that, it's raining like cats and dogs from English to Japanese or Chinese, it just wouldn't translate very well. They'd go, what? That doesn't make any sense. And so they didn't know how to how to translate this, and so all they put in there was it's gr how great. In other words, this is out of this world. This is, this is beyond your wildest dreams. This is, there's no words that describe how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. It's pretty profound. That's pretty profound. Household of God. So, so, Here's, here's one of many implications to that. Listen to me. There never has, there never has been, and never will be a father on earth that loves their child, wants the best for their child, as much as your father in heaven loves you and wants the best for you. Think about that. I mean, let the Holy Spirit just light that up in you. Believe me, if you believed that, really believed that, just didn't, it wasn't just a confession. It became a conviction. It, it ignited your heart. You would be different. It's gonna transform your life. It doesn't make sense that Almighty God would have children characterized by fear and insecurity. Does that make sense to you? Not to me. doesn't make sense that Almighty God would have children characterized by fear and insecurity. Chronic fearfulness in a believer is often the result of forgetfulness. We forget who, who we are. There is no way 
you will be able to grow in your experience of being a member of God's family apart from deep involvement in the community of other believers. The church is a family. You can't be a family by yourself. You can only do that through commitment and accountability to other Christians in a local church. We talked about this the first week as we began this series through 1 Timothy, that the word church used throughout the New Testament, it's, the word is ecclesia, those called out from the world to be a part of his family. That word is used 115 times in the New Testament, and 92 of those times it's talking about a local church family like Desert Breeze. The phrase one another. If you do a, uh, go to your concordance, do a Google search, whatever, you know, on your concordance, Bible gateway, and, and that one another is mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. So, so it really means to get up close and personal with other Christians, sharing your life. You need people in your life to help light this truth on fire deep within you people in your corner cheering you on we say this around here quite often desert breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become family yeah we don't say it enough do we because not as many knew that let me say that again desert breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become that's good yes family it's got to be more than what we do here. This is the catalyst for life change, but life change happens best where? Small groups. Small groups. We call them life groups. Connecting at a much deeper level where you're, you're sitting across from someone and sharing your life in Christ with each other. Here's the next uh, point on your notes. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. So we are members of God's family, we're the dwelling place of God's presence. Look at verse 15. He goes on as he's describing the church. This is ours through the gospel, which is the church of the living God. Living God, yeah, eternal, immortal God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul uh, says, for we are the temple of the living God. Now, it's been over a year now that we went through the book of Exodus. I, I loved the study, and there's a few Passages I keep going back to because they're, they're amazing passages. They're just good reminders. And so one of those passages is, is Exodus 33, where God tells Moses, okay, okay, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you into the promised land, land of milk and honey, and I'm going to have an angel lead you there, but I'm not going with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I will destroy you in rout. Well, that's not very nice. Yeah, and, and you know what's interesting? Their response to that is that they're devastated. You're not gonna go with us? And listen to what, what Moses says. Exodus thirty-three fifteen. Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You hear what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. No, 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 take in mind. He's just saying, we don't, want to, we're not going, we don't want to go in the promised land. If you don't go with us, we're not going to the promised land. The land of milk and honey. The American dream. However you would define success. The great life. He's saying, we don't want it. If we don't have your presence, we don't want it. That's what he's saying. What he's saying here is that I would rather wander around in the wilderness with your presence then go into the promised land without it. That's what he's saying. Let me, let me put it in, in, in a different way, even than that. God's presence, what he's saying, and I think it's really profound, God's presence, intimacy with God, gives to us a meaning, a hope, a happiness that all the success, all the promised lands in this world can't give us, and all the suffering... Wilderness wanderings in this world can't take from us. I'm, I'm convinced of this. Intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in a disenchanted world. We live in a terribly disenchanted world. 
I believe that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. That's what he's saying. You can have all the success as long as I have you, and even if it means I've got to suffer through the wilderness because as long as I have you, that's enough. That's powerful. I want to know that God. I want to experience that God. Exodus 33:18 Moses says, "Show me your glory." In that same chapter he says, "Show me your glory." And God responds by saying in in verse 20, Exodus 33:20, no one can see me and live. No one can see me and live. So here's, here's my understanding of this. We live, you know, kind of in the, in the New Testament times. And so what he's saying through all of this and what we can experience, the same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact now comes into the hearts of those pardoned by Christ. That's you and I. See, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the temple and the tabernacle. In the New Testament, God dwells in his people individually. This is one of your cross-references there on your notes. Individually, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and corporately in 1 Corinthians 3.16. So he dwells within us. And when we gather together, oh my goodness, his presence is here. I absolutely... This is, uh, this is my favorite. I absolutely love spending time with God. I, I can be lost in love, wonder, and praise for hours just meditating and reflecting and studying and praying and, with God. There's nothing better. That last song we sang, Psalm 16, one of my many favorite verses, In His Presence, is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you had an experience of that? It's amazing. Once you've tasted of his presence, his absence is unbearable. Spending time with God is an indispensable part of a healthy Christian's life. So I love love his presence individually, but I also love his presence corporately. And, and I, I know that there is a dynamic of God's presence when we gather regularly here at Desert Breeze that I or you can't experience on your own. There's something that happens when we gather together with the presence of God. You can't experience on your own. I love experiencing God on my own, but I love hanging out with other Christians and experiencing God with you here at Desert Breeze. And if you want to experience intimacy with God, this is what I've learned through the years, especially after coming off of a sabbatical. I desperately needed it. Nancy and I needed it this last summer. But if you want to experience intimacy with God individually and corporately, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You can't be intimate with God in a hurry. You must slow down to marvel at the mystery and the majesty of our indescribably great God and unimaginably good God. Psalm 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. When do you take out time to just be still and behold the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you? until it lights your heart on fire. I love the way the message puts that verse. It says, step out of the traffic. (laughs) That's true. Step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. Listen, there's nothing better. I believe this is the best part of the Christian life. Spending time with him, knowing him, enjoying him, intimacy with God. Now, how do we know this is true and how do we drive these truths deep into our hearts? Well, 
that, that we are members of God's family, the dwelling place of God's presence. Well, God wrote it down for us in his book, known as the Bible, Old and New Testament, made up of 66 love letters. Look at verse 15. We, the church, are the pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. We are the protectors and proclaimers of God's word. That's what he means there in verse 15. Pillar and buttress, pillar and foundation of the truth. So protectors, we are to hold it firm. Proclaimers, hold it high. The reason why we're to hold it firm is because there's a lot of false teachers and teaching in, in our culture, in churches here in America today. So we are to know the difference. By the way, next week, come back. We're going to talk about that, how, how to, to detect error. False teachers and uh, false beliefs that wreak havoc in your life. They don't bring freedom. They, they bring more bondage than anything. And so that's why we are to hold it firm, but then we are to hold it high, the most important book in our lives. God is the source of truth, not the church, but it's the church's responsibility to hold it firm as protectors and hold it high as proclaimers. The best defense against the lies in our culture, the lies even bouncing around in our heads, the best defense against the lies in our culture and bouncing around in our head is the rehearsal of the truth of God's word in our heart. You should know God's word better than the stats of your favorite sports team or quotes from your favorite movies or the details of your favorite hobby or the facts of the latest politics. You should know God's word better than all of that. And the reason why we get stressed out by all of that is because we don't know God's word better. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said this. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. What, what makes us a disciple? How do we know that we're his disciple? If we continue in his word. The word continue actually means to live, dwell, abide, make your home, be saturated in his word. If you continue in my word, then you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free like you've never been free before. That's what his word can do. So to the degree you believe a lie or errors, to the degree that you're gonna be in bondage, but to the degree that you understand his word, it will bring freedom to your life. He also told us in Matthew 7, 14 through 27, and um, he said, if you, he if you hear my words and heed, this was Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, if you hear and heed my words, it's like building your life on solid rock and when the storms rage, your life will still be standing no matter how dark and difficult it gets. You have a rock-solid life. And then John 17, 17, Jesus prayed this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What is he saying here? That we are made holy, we're made whole through the truth of God's word. Why is that? Well, because of Hebrews 4, 4.12, God's word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. So what does that mean? Well, that God's word is his personal act of presence in our lives when we read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and saturate our lives with it. it. Brings freedom. Now, okay, here we go. Let's transition. We're almost finished. Let's transition to this last part. So you got, convict, you got confession, truth entering ahead, conviction, igniting a heart, the third one is commitment, outworking through our hands. But let me tell you just a quick story here. This is a classic DB story that I often share in our, our uh, Game of Life class. But um, maybe you're familiar with the story of the four-year-old ring bearer. You guys familiar with that story? Anybody? Show of hands. Just a few of us. Okay. It's a little four-year-old ring bearer. Cutest could be. Had the, had the job. 
had his little tux on, looked really adorable in his little tux. But what was fascinating about this little ring bearer is that as he would take his little wedding march steps down the aisle, with each step, he would turn to the audience and go, he'd growl. And then he would take another step and he would turn and go, he did that all the way up the aisle. He even did it on the way out. And he, he stole the show. And so people thought, well, let's, I'm gonna, let's ask him, what, what was that about? So they sat down with him during the reception, the wedding reception, and they asked him, so uh, why were you growling at people as you were walking up the aisle with the rings, taking the rings up the aisle? And he looked at him kind of bewildered, kind of confused, and he said, because I am the ring bear. <laughs> Is that B-E-A-R? Yeah, that's what he thought. And so that's all he knew. He said, well, I'm a ring bear. They gave me the job. I'm a ring bear. That's what ring bears do. We growl. We keep people. We prick to them. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Uh, no, ring bearer, B-E-A-R-E-R. -E -R. See, here, here's the point. Here's the point of this is that our beliefs, our behavior, our behavior is, is the tangible expression of our beliefs. Our behavior is the tangible expression of our beliefs. And let me just say this. I come across Christians from time to time and they're really weird, okay? And then all I gotta do is follow it back to their beliefs. I'm thinking, no wonder you act like that. You're kind of growling at people and doing really weird stuff. And your beliefs are all messed up. We, we need to correct some of that. Because it's going to change how you behave. And so our behavior is the tangible expression of our beliefs. My confession and convictions will inevitably lead to commitments. And now let me walk you through the commitments. And these are the five, this is the 5G process here at Desert Breeze that we've been teaching from the very beginning. And I actually uh, lead a class. It's called Game of Life. And I take you through these 5Gs. It's an eight-week class, two hours, typically on Tuesday nights. By the way, the class is maxed out. We can't bring in any more people, and we had to turn away about a half dozen this last week, so we'll be offering the class again. We take quite a number of people through this class, but I take you through the 5G process here. Notice what it says in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave commitments in the household of God. So these five Gs are scattered throughout, really, 1 Timothy. This is what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Anybody know what the first G is? The first G is what? Don't everybody answer at once. Was genuine? Okay, some of you know that. Some of you remember that. Some of you are kind of hesitant, but it's a genuine Christian. Genuine Christian. For those of you that have gone through the class, genuine Christian. A genuine Christian is committed to Christ and to a church family. You made a commitment to Christ and to a church family. Confession, conviction, commitment. I'm in. I'm committed to Christ and to a local church family. By the way, when you do that, the next thing you want to do is to make it public through water baptism. We have a couple times a year we do water baptisms, and we'll do one here in, a, in another month or so, and so you'll be, want to keep your ears open and, and do that and make that public. And, and the next one is what? What's the next G? Anybody? Growing. Yes. So genuine. If you're a genuine Christian, you'll be a growing Christian. You're going to want to grow in your faith, committed to spiritual disciplines. Now, I said this last week, prayer and Bible study are the marks of a lover. But let me add one more to that. Prayer, Bible study, community, community are the marks of a lover. If you love Jesus, you can't help but pray, read your Bible, and fellowship with other Christians. Why? Because you want to increase your capacity to experience more and more of the presence of God in your life. You want to enjoy the riches of his glory. That's what spiritual growth is about, as he transforms your life. And I've already said it, but let me say it again. Life change happens best where? In small groups. And we call them life groups here. You need to get connected beyond what you're doing here on the weekend services. So, so genuine, growing, what's the third G? Giving. giving, giving Christian, committed to serving my church family. The sign of a healthy, vibrant, genuine, growing Christian is that they will anxiously and aggressively look for ways to give of their time, talent, treasure, their finances so that their church family can more effectively make an impact in people's lives. And the fourth G is what? Going. So genuine, growing, giving, going. We talked about going here. It was a missions and outreach updates. You guys are very much a going church committed to sharing the gospel with the world. Once you've tasted fellowship with God as a genuine, growing, giving Christian, you have to want anyone else you care about to experience it too. And so this involves not only sharing your faith 
with, with family and friends, but getting involved in mission opportunities here at Desert Breeze. There's no shortage of ministry and mission opportunities here at Desert Breeze, and we do all of this for, here's your last fill in the blank, for God's glory. All for God's glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Those are one and the same pursuit. The more you pursue giving glory to God through genuine growing, giving, going, the more you're going to experience satisfaction in him. And you're going to give glory to him. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Next weekend, detecting error, how to identify false and unhealthy beliefs and teaching. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. I want to kind of walk you through these last five G's to see where you might be. Where are you on this list of five G's? What is your next step? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just take a moment here this morning. Maybe, you're, maybe you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus. That would be the place for you to start. You acknowledge your sin. You believe Christ died on the cross for your sin. You confess him as Savior and Lord. Commit to Christ. Get connected to a local church family and then make that public through water baptism. That might be yours. Or maybe you've done that and you just, you've been a little bit lazy with the spiritual disciplines and maybe that's your next step for the new year. You need to read your Bible, pray, get connected to other Christians. Or maybe you're doing those and you need to begin to get involved in, in serving your church family. There's plenty of opportunities to do that. Or, or maybe you're doing those first three, but you just haven't given much thought about the people God has brought around you for you to tell them about the gospel. So just talk to God about that. Say, God, I want to I do better in this area. I want to begin to step up. As I've understood this confession of faith that we embrace, God, stir it within my heart as I begin to live it out in my life. Just make that your prayer this morning. So, Father God, the gospel never ceases to amaze us, and we confess that our Savior Jesus knows and cares and rules, and because, because of his rescuing and redeeming power, we are members of your family, the very dwelling place of your presence, and the pillar and foundation of truth. We commit to being genuine Christians who walk with you, growing Christians who live your word, giving Christians who contribute to your work, and going Christians who make an impact in this world, all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.